Today, I'm speaking to William McCaskill. Will is an associate professor in philosophy at Lincoln College, Oxford. He was educated at Cambridge, Princeton, and Oxford. He may, in fact, be the youngest tenured professor of philosophy in the world. And he's one of the primary voices in a movement in philanthropy known as effective altruism, a movement which he started with a friend. And he's the co-founder of three nonprofits based on effective altruist principles, Giving What We Can, 80,000 Hours, and the Center for Effective Altruism. He's also the author of a book, which I just started reading, which is really good. And the title is Doing Good Better, Effective Altruism and a Radical New Way to Make a Difference. And uh, there is no question that Will is making a difference. If you don't have two hours to spend on our whole conversation, which I absolutely loved, please listen to the last few minutes of this podcast so that you at least know the tangible effect the conversation had on me. And now I give you Will McCaskill. Well, I'm here with Will McCaskill. Will, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I first heard about you when you did your appearance on Tim Ferriss's podcast, Mm -hmm. and uh, that was a great interview, by the way. And I'm now in the habit, sorry, Tim, of poaching your your podcast guests. This is the third time I've done this. I, I did it with Jocko Willink, the Navy SEAL, and Eric Weinstein, the mathematician VC. Those are both great conversations. And now I have Will here. And so I, I just, the one thing I do is I, I try not to recapitulate the, the interview that, that was done with Tim. So we will not cover much of the ground you did there. So I recommend that interview because that was fascinating. And you, you have a fascinating bio, much of which we will, we will ignore because mm-hmm. you described it with Tim. But you know, briefly, just tell me what, what it is you're doing in the world and how you come to be thinking about the things you, you think about. Great. Yeah. So I'm a wear a couple of hats. I'm associate professor of philosophy at the University of Oxford with a focus on ethics and political philosophy, a little bit of overlap with economics. And I'm also the CEO of the Center for the Effective Altruism, which is a nonprofit um, designed to um, develop and promote the idea of effective altruism, which is the use of your time and money to do as much good as you possibly can, and using evidence and careful reasoning and high-quality thought in order to ensure that when you try to do good, you actually do as much good as possible, whether that's through your charity or through your career or through what you buy, um, and helps you choose what the causes where you can have the biggest impact. Mm. And put that way, it seems like a purely commonsensical approach to doing good in the world. I think as we get into this conversation, for people who mm-hmm. are not familiar with your work or the effective altruism movement, they'll be surprised to learn just how edgy certain of mm-hmm. your positions are, which is why this will be a fascinating conversation. So I should say up front, though, you have a book entitled Doing Good Better, which I have only started, I regret <laughs> to say, but it's a, a very well-written and very interesting book, which I recommend people read. It covers many things we, again, probably won't cover in this conversation. But tell me about the play pump. You start your book with this story, and it really encapsulates much of what is wrong and what much of what is potentially right with philanthropy. Yeah. So the play pump um, was developed in the late 1990s, and it was an idea that really caught the attention of um, people around the world, but especially kind of philanthropic development communities. 
And so the play pump was built in South Africa, and the idea behind it was that it was a way of providing clean water to poor villages that didn't currently have clean water um, across sub-Saharan Africa and South Africa, uh, where it was a combination invention. It was a children's merry-go-round. So children would push this thing, look just like a merry-go-round, but the force from the children pushing it uh, would pump clean water up to a reservoir that would provide the clean water for the um, community. So it looked like a win-win. The children of the village would get their first playground amenity, and uh, the people of the village would um, get clean water. And, you know, it really took off for that reason. So the media loved to pun on the idea that it's pumping water, there's child's play, it's the magic roundabout. Mm. Uh, it got a huge amount of funding. The first lady, Laura Bush, at the time, um, as part of the Clinton Global Initiative, uh, gave it $17 million in funding to roll this out across uh, sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, it won the World Bank Development Marketplace Award um, for being such an innovative invention. Jay-Z promoted it, Beyonce. It really, it was like, it was the thing within development for a while. Mm. Um, and when I first heard about it, I thought, wow, yeah, what an amazing idea. This is um, great that you can do two things at once. Um, yeah. Making children happy, but then also providing water. It just seems such a good example of, and everyone, of course, was like very well-intentioned behind it. Yeah, um, well, I, and I, I should say, reading that section of your book, it's which, I, which again is the first few pages. The effect on the reader is really perfect to you because mm -hmm. you, you you find yourself on the wrong side of this particular phenomenon because it, you just think, oh my god, that is the greatest idea ever. Yeah, right. Yeah, this is a merry-go-round for kids that has the effect of doing all of this annoying labor mm -hmm. that was otherwise done by women, you know, yep. pumping yep. these hand pumps. So now continue to the yeah. depressing so, conclusion. Uh, yeah, as um, you might expect, there's a twist in the story, which is just that simply the, in reality, the play pump was a terrible idea from the start. So unlike a normal merry-go-round, which spins freely once you push it, in order to pump the clean water, you need you know, constant torque. So actually pushing this thing would be very tiring for the kids. I mean, there were other problems too. Sometimes they'd fall off and break limbs. Sometimes the children would vomit from the spinning. But the main problem was that they would just simply get very tired. They wouldn't want to play on this thing all day. But the community still needed this water. And so it was normally left up to the elderly women of the village to push this brightly colored um, play pump round and round for all hours of the day, a task they found very undignified and demeaning. Um, and then secondly, it just wasn't even very good as a pump. Um, and often it was replacing very boring um, but very functional Zimbabwe hand pumps which when you actually ask the communities they preferred, it would pump more water with less effort for actually a third of the price. There were a number of other problems too. They would often break that down. There had initially been an idea that maintenance would be paid for with billboards um, on these reservoirs, but no, none of advertising companies actually wanted to pay for it. And so these things were often left in disarray and no maintenance would happen to them either. And so this all came to light in a couple of investigations. And Thankfully, in, what, in what's actually a very admirable and rare case, uh, the people who are funding this, especially the Case Foundation, acknowledged that this had been a big mistake um, and then said, yep, we just made a mistake. We're no longer going to keep funding this. What about and, the man who had invented or was pushing the idea of the pump? Yeah, so the people who were pushing it, Play Pumps International and whatever field behind it, continued to go ahead with it. They didn't right. accept the criticism. Uh, this is perhaps a phenomenon you're very familiar with. Yes, um, yes. 
Uh, and so actually, the organization does still continue in a vastly diminished capacity today. They're still producing play pumps sponsored by companies like Colgate Palmolive and Ford Motors. Mm. But what is unusual in the world of doing good is that actually these critic- this actually was investigated, criticism came to light, and people were willing to back out. But the lesson from this is just that what seem like, you know, good intentions aren't good enough. What seems like a really good idea, it just seems like, yeah, this is amazing. It's a revolutionary new idea. Actually can just not be very effective at all. It can even do more harm than good. Mm. What we need to do if we want to really make a big difference is do the boring work of actually investigating how much does this thing cost? How many people's lives are going to be affected and by how much? How, um, what's the evidence behind this? And the many other things that we could be spending our money on that are much less sexy than the play pump, but do vast amounts of good. Mm. And that's why it's absolutely crucial if we really do want to use our time and money to make a difference, that we think about what are the different ways we could be spending this time or money? Uh, what's the evidence behind the different programs we could be doing? And what's the one that's going to do the very most good? Seems to me there are at least three elements to what you're doing that are very powerful and the first is the the common sense component, which really is not so common as as we know, which is just to actually study the results of one's mm-hmm. actions and in the spirit of science, see what mm-hmm. works and then stop doing what doesn't work. But the other element is you are committed. I know you're personally committed and to some degree, I, I guess mm-hmm. you can just tell me how much the EA community is also committed explicitly to essentially giving until it hurts. I mean, mm-hmm. gi- giving mm-hmm. a, a, what many people would view as a heroic amount mm-hmm. of, of one's wealth to the poorest people in the world or to the, the gravest problems in the world. And we'll talk about Peter Singer in a moment because you, you've certainly been inspired by him in that regard. And the, the third component is to no longer be taken in by certain moral illusions where mm-hmm, the, the, mm-hmm. the thing that is sexiest or most disturbing isn't often the gravest need or mm-hmm. doesn't represent the gravest need. And to cut through that in a, in a very unsentimental way. Mm-hmm. And, and this is where people's moral intuitions are going to be pushed around. So l- let's start with the second piece, because I, I think the first is, is uncontroversial. We want to know what is actually effective. But how far down the path with Peter Singer do you go in terms of, because I've heard you say, I've watched a few of your talks at this point, I've heard you say things that more or less align you perfectly with, mm-hmm. with Singer's level of, of commitment, which where he more or less argues, I don't think he has ever recanted this, that you should give every free cent mm-hmm. to help the neediest people on earth. That, that It's morally indefensible to have anything like what we would consider a luxury mm-hmm. when you're looking at the zero-sum trade-off between spending a dollar on ice cream or what, whatever it is and saving yet another life. So just, just tell me how much you've been inspired by Singer and where you may differ with his, his yeah. take. So I think there's just two framings um, which are both accurate. So the first is the kind of obligation frame, just how much are we required to give. Uh, and Peter Singer argues that we have an obligation to give basically everything we can and argues for this by saying, well, imagine if you're just walking past a child down in a shallow pond and rescued that child. Uh, and 
or failed to rescue that child, you know, that would be morally abominable. Mm. What's the difference between that and spending a few thousand dollars on uh, luxury items when that money could have been spent to save a life in a poor country? If you tried to justify not saving the child in the shallow pond because you were going to uh, ruin your nice suit that cost you a thousand pounds, that would just be, you know, no ju- moral justification at, at all, nor if, wouldn't be a justification if it was 10,000 pounds. Mm. Um, and so for that reason, he argues, yeah, we have this obligation. There's another framing as well, which we call this excited altruism, uh, which is, um, I use the story of, imagine if you're walking past a burning building and you run in, you see the chi- there's a child there, you kick the door down and, you know, you save that child. Um, on this framing, the thought is just, wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't you feel like that was a really special moment in your life? You'd feel like this hero. And imagine if you did that several times in a year. You know, you save one child from a burning building, another time you take a bullet for someone, mm. a third time, you know, you save someone from drowning. You'd think your life was really pretty special. And, uh, you know, you'd feel pretty good about yourself. Uh, and the truth of the matter is actually, yeah, we can do that every single year. We can do much more than that hero who runs into the burning building and saves that child's life just by deciding to use our money in a different way. And so there's these two framings, obligation and opportunity. Um, and I actually just think both are true. Many people in the effective altruism community don't actually agree with the obligation framing. They think they're doing what they do because it's part of their values, but there's no sense in which they're obligated to do it. Um, I actually I in, agree with Singer's arguments. Um, I think that certainly if you can help other people to a very significant extent, such as by saving a life, while not sacrificing anything of moral significance, um, then you're required to do it. I mean, in my own case, I just think the level at which I'm at least approximately just maxing out on how much good I can do Mm. is just nowhere close to the level at which I think, wow, this is like a big sacrifice for me. And so perhaps a big sacrifice in financial terms. So, you know, as an academic, I'll be on a good middle-class income. Um, and I'm planning to give away most of my income over the course of my life. Mm. So in financial terms, it looks like a big sacrifice. But in terms of my personal well-being, I don't think um, it's like that at all. I don't think money is actually a big factor. And if you look in my own personal happiness, if you look at the literature on well-being, this is also the case beyond um, even quite a low level of about $35,000 per year. The relationship between money and happiness is very small indeed. Um, On some ways of measuring it, it's non-existent, in fact. And then, on the other hand, being part of this community of people who are really trying to make the world better um, is just very rewarding, actually, just has these positive effects in terms of my own well-being. Mm. So the kind of answer is just that, yeah, in theory, I agree, just even if it was the case that, you know, I would think that, yeah, this is a moral requirement and so on. But then in practice, it's actually just not really much of a sacrifice for me, I don't think. Let's linger there because I have heard you say in response to to challenges of the sort that Singer often receives, well, if you can live comfortably and do good, Mm -hmm. well, then that's great. That's a bonus. There's Mm -hmm. nothing nothing wrong with living comfortably. And now you have just claimed that you're living comfortably. But in fact, by by most people's view, you, I think, so so spell out how how much do you, what is is actually your commitment to giving money away at this point? So to giving money, um, uh, so in 2009, I made a commitment to give everything above £20,000 per year, inflation and purchasing power 
Palatie adjusted to Oxford 2009. Right. So now that's about £24,000 with current exchange rate. That's something like $33,000. Uh, and just to then give everything above that. And not to wait. to the, You do and that every year. Not, not to wait. Yeah, I do it every year. And then I, with my time as well, I just try and spend as much time as I can. And, um, do, and do you actually think that would or will scale with vastly increased economic opportunity if you get dragged into a startup next mm-hmm. week where now you're making millions of dollars at some point, you aspire to, to keep it where you've set it now? Or? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, the amount of money I've been earning over the last year is much greater than when I was a postdoc or PhD student. And in fact, that's just been a plus. I'm happier that I'm able to give away more. Um, I mean, the one worry, the biggest worry I have with my commitment is just value of my time. So there's certain ways you can spend money in order to save time eating mm. out rather than making food for yourself, being more willing to get a taxi places rather than the bus. Yeah, and that's interesting. That means I think I'd be making a mistake if my play... So I have a kind of balancing act. One is just because I'm using my time to you know, build up Center for Effective Altruism and so on, promote these ideas. I want to ensure that I have as much time as possible to do that. But then at the same time, I don't want to say, oh, well, people should be giving... Or it's really good for people to be giving their money effectively, but... Um, I don't do that because my time's so valuable. That would just seem kind of hypocritical. So I also just want to demonstrate like, yeah, you can do this. And just it's actually just a really good life. It's not nearly as much of a sacrifice as it might seem. Let's linger there for a moment, because I think that if you are not following Singer all the way, so mm-hmm. that the implications of, of his argument is really that there there should be some kind of equilibrium state where mm-hmm. you are more or less indistinguishable from the people you're helping at a mm-hmm. certain point because you've helped them so much. Mm-hmm. So you, if, if you are living a comfortable life, really at all, I mean, a comfortable life by Western standards, you are still, from Singer's view, culpably standing next to the shallow pond watching yet another child drown. And so I'm wondering how you draw that line. And obviously, I mean, you, and needless to say, there's no judgment in this because what the, the scheme you have just sketched out is already qualifies you for sainthood in, in most people's worldview at this point. But how do, so how, how do you think about that? Yeah. So why don't I give even more? So I think, I think even on, you, if, even if you endorse kind of pure utilitarianism, just should maximize the amount of good you can do. I think that just for practical reasons, that doesn't mean that you should um, move all of your, um, you know, keep donating until you're living on $2 per day. Mm. Um, not if you're then um, a rich country, because the opportunities you have to spend, let's just solely focus on money. So there's lots of other ways of doing good. But if you were to say, okay, I'm going to live a normal, um, you know, keep going in my own job and do- just donate as much as I can until I'm earning like very little. Firstly, I think you know, that's going to damage your ability to earn more later. It means that um, there's risks of yourself burning out, um, which is, I think, very significant. If you're going to you know, wear the hair shirt for three years and then completely give up on modality altogether, that's much mm-hmm. worse than just donating a more moderate amount but for the rest of your life. And then also in terms of, yeah, your productivity and your work as well, it's just actually really important to ensure that you've got the right balance between how much you're donating so that you can do it positively. And then finally, in terms of the influence you have on other people, I think if you're able to, you know, if you're able to act as a role model, something that people actually really aspire towards, think, yeah, this is this amazing way to live a life and look at these people are able to donate a very significant amount and still have a really great life. 
that's much more powerful because it actually might mean that many other people go and do the same thing. Mm. And if just one other person does the same thing as you do, you've doubled your life's impact. It's like a very big part of the equation. Mm. Um, whereas if you're walking around utterly miserable, just so you can donate that extra, that last cent to fight global poverty, you know, you might seem a little bit like an anti-hero. Um, and I think that's a very important consideration. So I actually think that when it comes to the practical implication of Singer's ideas, it doesn't lead you to donate everything above you know, $2 per day. Um, instead, you, you kind of max, the optimal amount is actually quite, quite a higher level, which is um, maximizing the amount of good you'll do over the course of your lifetime, mm. bearing in mind the ability to, say, get promotions or change career, earn more, the value of your time, ensuring you're productive and ensuring you're a good role model to other people as well. Um, and so I actually think that, yeah, the case at which I try and maximize my own impact is, you know, way far away from the line at which uh, I'd think this is really, really a big, you know, a big hardship for me. And I think that's true, at least for many people. Yeah, this is, this is really a fascinating area, and it's, it's going to get more fascinating because it's, it just becomes strange the closer you look at it. Now, I, I'm totally convinced by your opportunity framing. And while I had heard it put that way before, your emphasis on that is very attractive and very compelling. And, and so, I mean, just to remind our listeners, so that by dint of having the resources you have, and if you're listening to this podcast in any developed country, you almost by definition have vast resources relative to the poorest people on earth. And this puts you in a position to quite literally save the child from the burning building any moment you decide to write a check for I mean, what what is it that actually in your view is sufficient to save a life you, yeah, using the so best charity this the best month. guess from givewell donating to against malaria foundation is three thousand four hundred dollars right. statistically speaking on average save a life and they're keen to emphasize that you know that's just an estimate um a lot of kind of assumptions go into that and so on but they're very careful, very skeptical. It's the best you know, estimate that I know of. So, so that, that opportunity is always there. And I guess one of the challenges from a philanthropic point of view and just a, the point of view of one's own, maximizing one's own psychological well-being is to make that opportunity as salient as possible. Because obviously writing a check doesn't feel like rushing across the street and, and grabbing the child out of the burning building. And then being rewarded by all the thanks you'll get from from your neighbors, but if you could fully internalize the ethical significance of the act, something like that reward is available to us. At least that's what you're arguing. I'm convinced that is a good way of of seeing it, and and so therefore taking those opportunities more and more and making them more emotionally real seems like a very important project for all of us who have so much. The other side, the, 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 the Singarian obligation side, I think is, is fraught with other issues. And so I just want to explore this a little bit. The problem we're dealing with here is that we are beset by many different forms of moral illusion where we effortlessly care about things mm -hmm. that are, in the scheme of things, not all that important and can't be goaded to care about things that are objectively and subjectively, when you actually connect with the lives of the people suffering these conditions, the most important problems on earth. 
and the, the classic example is, you know, a girl falls down a well, it's one girl, it's one life, and what you see is wall-to-wall coverage on every channel for 24 hours tracing the, the rescue, successful or otherwise, of this little girl. And yet a genocide could be raging in Sudan. Mm-hmm. And not only do we, can't we be moved to care, we so reliably can't be moved to care that the news organizations just can't bear to cover it. I mean, they, they give us a little bit of it just because it's their obligation, but it's, it's five minutes and they know that's, that's a losing proposition for them anyway. Yep, yep. So that's, that's the situation we're in, and that seems like a bug, not a feature of our ethical hardware. For me, it, it exposes an interesting paradox here because, because the, the most disturbing things are not reliably the most harmful in the world, mm-hmm. and the most harmful things are not reliably the most disturbing. Mm-hmm. And you can talk about this from the, the positive or negative sides. We can talk about the goods we don't do, and we can talk about the harms people cause. And so this is an example from my first book, The End of Faith. To find out that your grandfather, flew a few bombing missions over Dresden in the war mm-hmm. is one thing. Mm-hmm. To find out that he killed a woman and her children with a shovel mm-hmm. is another. Now, he undoubtedly would have killed more women and children mm-hmm. flying that bombing mission. But given the difference between killing from 30,000 feet by dropping bombs and killing up close and personal, and this is where the paradox comes in. We, we recognize that it would take a different kind of person with a very different set of internal motives, intentions, and you know, global properties of his mind and emotional life to do the latter versus the former. So a, a completely ordinary person like ourselves could be, by dint of circumstance, detached enough from the consequences of his actions so as to drop the bombs mm-hmm, mm-hmm. from the plane. It takes a proper psychopath or somebody who was pushed into psychopathy by mm-hmm. his experience to kill people in that way with a shovel. And to flip this back to philanthropy, it is a very different person who throws out the appeal from UNICEF, casually ignoring the fact that he has foregone yet another opportunity to save a life. That person is, is very different from the person who would pass a child drowning in a shallow pond because he doesn't want to get his shoes wet. And so the utilitarian equation between you know, a life, life and life, mm-hmm. which Singer's obligation story rests on, doesn't acknowledge the fact that it really would require a, a different person mm-hmm. to ignore suffering that was that salient or to perpetrate, in the case of, of creating harms, suffering that's that salient. And yet we're being asked to view them as equivalent for the purpose of, of parsing the, the ethics. So I think um, there's an important distinction between assessing acts and assessing a person, assessing a person's character. And I think normally when we go about doing model reasoning, most of the time we're talking about people's characters. So is this a good person in general? Can I trust them to do good things in the future? Is it the sort of person I want to associate with? Whereas moral philosophers are often talking about acts. Um, And so I think Singer as well would agree that it's in some sense a much worse person who kills someone than who, like intentionally kills someone than who just walks past a drowning child. Um, And you'd entirely agree with that because in part the 
idea that it's much worse to kill people intentionally is a far greater moral wrong in our society than merely failing to save someone. Right. Um, Although, let, let me just, the difference between an act of commission and omission, I mm-hmm. think it brings in a different variable here. I mean, I agree that that, that is a difference that we, we find morally salient. But what I'm talking about here is in both cases, you are declining to help someone mm-hmm. on the side of not doing good. And in both cases, in war, you are yeah, knowingly yeah. killing people, but they're just very different circumstances. Right. So of, there's of different yeah, yeah. levels of salience. And so yeah. um, I agree that it's kind of, I would also just be very troubled by someone who wasn't moved by the more salient um, causes of suffering um, in human in some way. Um, but when we think about moral progress, I think it's absolutely crucial to pay particular attention to those causes of suffering that are very kind of mechanized or have the salience stripped away from them. I mean, if you look at the orders that were given to SS guards in terms of descriptions of um, how to treat Jews in the Holocaust, every step has been taken to kind of remove their humanity, to turn it into completely banal evil. And it's through that almost mechanization of suffering that I think humanity has committed some of the worst wrongs in its history. And I think that that's also going to be true today. So when you look at practice of factory farming, or if you look at the way we incarcerate people. So, you know, if we saw a country, as happens, that was um, regularly, uh, flo- you know, flogging or inflicting corporal punishment on its criminals, I think that's absolutely barbaric um, as a practice. But yet putting someone in a prison cell for several years um, is a worse harm to them. I think it's like considerably worse the punishment we're inflicting on them, but it doesn't give us that same like emotional resonance. Mm. And I think Insofar as there's this track record throughout human history of people doing absolutely abominable acts, not realizing that it was morally problematic at all, even taking it as common sense, precisely because the ways in which the harm caused had been stripped away, had been made sterile, as were the case of the SS guards, that should give us pause when there's some case of you know, extreme harm that has this property of being made sterile should make us worry, are we in that situation again? Are we just thinking, oh yeah, this is co- common sense, normal part of practice, but only because of the way that things have been framed. And the really powerful thought, I think, from you know, Singer's arguments or thinking about extreme poverty is, well, maybe we're in that situation now with respect to us in the West compared to the global poor. So if we look back to think of Louis XVI or something, or imagine some monarch with who's incredibly wealthy with his people starving all around him. Thank God, that's absolutely horrific. Mm. It doesn't seem so different from the way that we are at the moment. Everyone in a rich country in the US or UK is in the, basically most of the population are in the richest 10% of the world's population, even once you've taken into account the fact that money goes further overseas. I imagine most of the listeners of this podcast are in the top few percent. If you're earning above uh, $55,000 per year, you're in the richest 1% of the world's population. Mm. Um, and this is a very unusual state to be in. It's only in the last 200 years that we've seen such a radical divergence between uh, rich countries and the poorest countries in the world. So it's not something that our moral intuition, I think, is really caught up to. But in the spirit of thinking, well, what are the ways in which we could be acting in a way that seems radically wrong from the perspective of future generations, but that we take for common sense? I, you know, I think Singer's definitely put his finger on a possible candidate, which is the fact that the fact that we, you know, have what by historical standards and global standards is immense wealth, immense luxury, 
and it's currently like common sense or normal just to use that on yourself rather than to think of it as um in some sense um resources that really belong to all of humanity okay well we're going to keep digging in this particular hole because this, this is <laughs> this is where we are going to reach moral gold so you did you did a debate with giles frazier for intelligence squared mm -hmm. which i was amused to see that i i, I had actually debated him mm -hmm. as well he liked you much more than he liked me, I think, probably because you weren't telling him his religion was bullshit. I can imagine. G Giles is a priest. But I thought he raised a very interesting point in your, your debate, and your answer was also interesting. So I'll just take you back to that moment. Mm -hmm. Again, we're in a burning house with a child who can be saved. But in, in this house, there is a Picasso on the wall in another room, and you really only have a moment to get mm -hmm. out of there with, with one of these precious objects intact. And Giles suggested that on your view, the Picasso is worth so much that you really should save it because you can sell it and turn it into thousands and thousands of bed nets that will mm -hmm. save presumably thousands of lives. I'm not sure that's actually the conversion from bed net to life, but in any case, we're talking about a multi-million dollar painting, mm -hmm. let's say a $50 mm -hmm. million dollar painting. And your child or the child is just one life. And so he put that to you, I think expecting, perhaps not, but mm -hmm. uh, expecting that that is a, a knockdown argument against your position. And you just bit the bullet there. So mm -hmm. perhaps you yeah. want to respond again to that yeah, thought so, experiment. Yeah. So the first question, the first thing to caveat is that Giles is asking this as a philosophical thought experiment. So you strip away extraneous factors like what's the media going to think of this and what, you know, perhaps also kind of, are you going to be able to live with yourself afterwards as a matter of human psychology and so mm. on. So stripping away those things to just have the pure thought experiment of, well, you can save this child or you can save this Picasso and sell it to buy bed nets. And the question I asked him was, well, supposing there's just two burning buildings and one there's a single child and in the other burning building there's, let's say it's a hundred children that you could save. And the only way you can save those hundred children is by taking this Picasso off the wall and using it to prop open the door um, of this other building such that a hundred children can go through. Mm. Um, what ought you to do? And I think in that case, it's very clear you ought to save the hundred children, even if you're using this painting as a means to doing so. The fact that that's, you're using that as a means doesn't seem relevant. And the reason I actually quite like this thought experiment is it really shows what a morally unintuitive world we're in that actually the situation we're in right now is, is that there's a burning building. It's just that it's behind you rather than in front of you. And that there is that, those hundred children whose lives you can potentially save that are behind you and, the, and not salient to you. And so I think like Giles, what Giles was wanting to say was that, oh, isn't this very uncompassionate? Um, but actually, I think this is just far more sophisticated compassion. The n understanding that um, there are people on the other side of the world who are whose lives are just as important, who are just as in need of someone who's right in front of you, you know, that shows a much more sophisticated, much more genuine form of compassion than just simply being moved by whatever happens, uh, happens to be most salient to you at the time. And so, yeah, it's like a conclusion that show, like it's a weird conclusion, but the weirdness comes from how weird the world is, how morally unintuitive the mm -hmm. world we happen to find ourselves is in, which is that like, yeah, save the painting and morally speaking, save the painting and therefore save hundreds of lives. Um, having said that, of course, I wouldn't blame someone. And I think like, 
again, as we talked about in terms of natural human psychology, it's like perfectly natural to save the person who's right in front of you. Um, so I wouldn't blame anyone for doing that. But if we're talking about moral philosophy and what the morally correct choice is, then um, uh, I think you just have to sa- have to save the hundred. Well, so you wouldn't blame them, and the decision to save the Picasso strikes us as so strange. Those are two, I think, mm-hmm. two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. I mean, you wouldn't blame them because you're acknowledging how counterintuitive it is to That's save right. the Picasso and not, and not the child. And so you're you're really putting the onus on the world, on the situation, on mm-hmm. all the contingent facts of mm-hmm. our biology and our our circumstance that causes us to not be starkly consequentialist in mm-hmm. this situation. So my concern there is that that's not I mean one of the reasons why I don't tend to call myself a consequentialist even though I am one mm-hmm. is because for me consequentialism or historically consequentialism has been so often associated with just looking at the numbers of bodies on mm-hmm. both sides of the balance, and that's mm-hmm. how you understand the consequences of an action and judge its, its moral merits. But there's more to it than that. And, and, and Gile, and you just acknowledged that there was more to it mm-hmm. than that, but you weren't inclined to put those consequences also into the picture. So like the question of whether you could live with yourself, mm-hmm. right? And that's, I, th- I think that's the spectrum of effects certainly includes whether you could live with yourself. Mm-hmm. And it includes, to come back to the, the moral paradox here, it also includes what kind of person you would have to be in order to grab the Picasso mm-hmm. and not the child, mm-hmm. given all of the contingent facts mm-hmm. we just acknowledged, given how weird the world is, mm-hmm. or given how not optimized the world is to produce a person who could just algorithmically always save a hundred lives mm-hmm. over mm-hmm. one every time, no yeah. matter how the, the, the decision is couched. We can even make the situation more perverse. So, you know, I, ha- I have two daughters. I don't have a Picasso on the wall, but certainly I have something mm-hmm. that could be sold that could buy enough bed nets to save more than two lives mm-hmm. in Africa, right? So the house burns down tonight. I have a choice to grab my daughters or grab this thing, whatever it is. and I reason thusly, having been convinced by you in this podcast, that saving at least three lives in Africa is better than saving my two daughters. And it's only a contingent property of my own biology and its attendant selfishness and my, you know, the drive toward kin selection and all the rest that has caused me to even be biased toward my daughter's lives over the lives of faceless children in Africa. So. I'm convinced and I grab the valuable thing and sell it and donate it to GiveWell and it's used for bed nets. And so I think even you, mm-hmm. given everything you believe about the ethical imperative of the singer style argument, would be horrified mm-hmm. and rightly so that I was capable of doing that. That horror, or at least that distrust of my psychology, mm-hmm. I think summarizes an intuition we have about all of the other consequences that are in play here that we, that we haven't thought much about. And again, this is a very complicated area because I, I, I see that, I don't know if you know about my analogy with the, the moral landscape where we can have mm-hmm. various yeah, yeah, peaks yeah, yeah. Of, yeah. Of, of well-being. I could imagine a, a, an alternate peak on the moral landscape where we are such beings as to really care about all lives generically, mm-hmm. as much as we care about our own children's lives. Mm-hmm. So 
I, I feel I love my children, but I actually also feel the same love for people in Africa I've never mm-hmm. met, and it's just as available to me, and therefore my disposition not to privilege my children mm-hmm. is not a sign of any lack of connection to them. It's just I, you know, I'm, you know, the Dalai Lama squared. I've mm-hmm, got that, mm-hmm. conne- I'm, a, you know, mm-hmm. the Bodhisattva mm-hmm. of compassion and I've got that connection everywhere. So I grabbed the Picasso and I, I can feel good about saving more lives in Africa. But my concern is that let's, let's just acknowledge that is another peak on the moral landscape. But between where we are now, where we love our children more than, than those we haven't met and would be, would view it as an, an act of pathological al- altruism to let them burn and just grab the Picasso based on our knowledge that mm-hmm. we could do more good with it. If we wanted to become the, the Dalai Lama style altruist, there may be this uncanny or unhappy valley between these two peaks that we would have to traverse where there is some, there would be something sociopathic about mm-hmm. an ability to run this calculus and be motivated mm-hmm. by it. Yeah. So there's a ton to say here. So one thing yeah, I want to say it's like, I also don't um, describe myself as a consequentialist. I think um, the correct thing to do is to, in a moral decision, is have a kind of variety of moral lenses. My PhD was on this topic. Mm. Um, have a variety of moral lenses and take the action that's the best kind of compromise between the competing moral views that seem most plausible, some of which are consequentialist, um, others might be non-consequentialist. Um, and I do think that the case, you know, there's, and I just emphasize consequences because everyone should agree that consequences matter and they're very neglected um, in terms of the impact that we can have in the world we're, that we're in. And so I think the case where you've got special obligations, it's a family member or, do- or a child or a friend, is just very different from the question when it's just um, strangers. I think it's at least a reasonable moral view to think, I just do have this special obligation to my friends. It's certainly very deep part of common sense to think, I do have a special obligation to my child. And if I can save my child, even if it was they were right in front of me, I can save one child, I can save 10, 10 strangers, I should save my child. And so I think that's quite a different case. Um, Although even I, just on moral I mean, well, maybe we should just plant a flag there because I think that's interesting. I, I don't know what special obligations actually consist in apart from some argument that one that we just were hardwired that way, and it's it's hard to get over this hardwiring. Mm-hmm. But two, we are better off for honoring those obligations, and mm-hmm. so, so the, it, d- it does resolve to consequences in some way. If our if our world would be much better if we ignored those ob- those those hardwired obligations or mm-hmm. our sense of obligation, mm-hmm. then I think we there's an argument for ignoring them. So so we can we, we can table that. Yeah, but then the second question, which is very important, um, taking us back to the Picasso. Is this, and this is a way in which uh, moral philosophy can often be very confusing to people who don't do it, is that moral philosophers do engage in these thought experiments where they say, oh, well, put aside all of these other considerations that Mm. are normally irrelevant, and then they expect you to still have a reliable intuition, even in this very, very strange, fantastical case. And so I do think in the case of when you are bringing back factors like, am I actually psychologically capable of doing this? How am I going to like think about myself when I like hear like this child screams in my like late at mm. night every day. Of course, that's incredibly relevant. And then similarly, I think again the kind of philosopher tends to focus on what acts are the best. Whereas in terms of the life decisions we make, biggest decisions tend to be more like what sort of person should I be? What are my big projects? 
Um, and I think cultivating in yourself the sort of to become the sort of person who's empathetic enough that you won't in this situation simply do the calculations and just go and save the Picasso. You know, I think that might well be right that you're just going to be a person that'll do more good over the long run mm. um, if you don't do that. That's why it's kind of uh, a subtle case where, again, you want to distinguish between what's the best kind of character to have. And the best character to have might um, is plausibly one that means you do the wrong thing a number of times. That's very interesting. So let's just, I don't want to interrupt you if you had much more you wanted to say there because every one of these points is so interesting. <laughs> I mean, this has been my, my gripe with certain caricatures of utilitarianism or consequentialism, which is so, so the idea that if you can sacrifice one to save five, well, mm -hmm. then you should, you know, you, mm -hmm. you go into your doctor's office for a checkup and he realizes he's got yeah, five exactly. other yeah, patients yeah. who need your organs. So they just grab you and, and steal your organs and, and you now are dead. But if you just look at the, the larger consequence of living in a world where at any moment any of us could be sacrificed by society to save five others, none of us want to live in that world. And I think for a good reason. And so you have to, grapple with a much larger spectrum of effects when you were going to talk about consequences. So you just, you just acknowledged one here, whereas that to be the kind of person you want to be who is really going to do good in the world and to be tuned up appropriately to, to have the right social connections to other human beings, you may in fact want to be the kind of person who privileges love of one's friends and family over a more generic yeah, loving yeah, kindness yeah. to all human beings, because if you can't feel those bonds with friends and family, that has moved enough, enough of the moving pieces in your psychology so that you're not the kind of person who is going to care about mm -hmm. the suffering of others as much as you might. Yeah. So an, another example um, of this is a number of people I know, often a consequenceless mindset, um, with respect to their dietary choices, just kind of acknowledge that. Um, you know, animal suffering is really bad and, you know, animals have real, like non-human animals have real moral status that we should respect and won't eat some very bad forms of meat, like factory farm chicken on that grounds. But for something like beef or lamb, the animals, I think, just have reasonable lives, not amazing lives, but lives that are definitely worth living better than if they, for them if they'd never existed. You actually think that's true of factory farmed beef or just, or you're, you're I mean, now talking about I was talking about grass more, fed, yeah, more, pasture raised beef. I mean, it's harder to factory farm a cow in the way that you can. You can't treat them in nearly as badly as you can a chicken. But mm. um, as for like which animals have lives that are worth living or not, it's a really hard question. Mm. But there are at least some people who will kind of justify eating that sort of meat because, you know, what you're doing by buying that meat is increasing the demand for a certain type of meat that then means that more animals of that type come into existence. Mm. And those animals have good lives. So the question is, well, who's it bad for then? It's not bad for the cow you're eating because that cow's already dead. It's not bad for the cow that you bring into existence because it wouldn't have existed otherwise. But then I just like, I can't imagine in my own case, psychologically believing both that animal suffering is incredibly important and, um, you know, you should care a lot about animals and then also kind of just eating their flesh. It just, I don't think it's mm. a psychological possibility for me. So you're a vegetarian? So I'm vegetarian, mm. that's right. Um, I mean, another case given by, first given to me by Derek Parfit is, um, you know, your grandmother who you love very much, you've got a very close relationship with her. Um, when she dies, you just throw her in the garbage. Just, mm. um, questions, well, who's that bad for? You know, it's not bad 
not bad for her because she's no longer with us. Um, but again, it just seems like there's this, as a matter of human psychology, doing that is very inconsistent with what seems like genuine regard for mm. um, that person. But so, so but I think that, that's yeah, yeah. worth acknowledging. So it's easy to cash that intuition out again in the form of consequences, in my view, which is, yes, it's not bad for your grandmother because she's presumably not there to experience anything, but the sense that there's something sacred about a human life or the sense that, mm-hmm. that one's love of a person needs to be honored by an appropriate framing of their death, mm-hmm. that is good for everyone else who's yet mm-hmm. living, mm-hmm. right? And if we just chucked our loved ones in the trash, that would have implications for how we feel about them. And how we feel about them is the thing that causes us to recoil from mm-hmm. treating them that way once, once they've died. And this is going to become more and more pressing. These kinds of seemingly impractical bounce of philosophizing will become more and more pressing when we can really alter our emotional lives and moral intuitions to a degree that is, you know, very granular. So mm-hmm. well, just imagine you had a pill that allowed you to just no longer be sad, right? So like this is the perfectly targeted antidepressant that has no other downside, no other symptoms. You know, pharmacologically, we may in fact get that lucky, maybe not. But imagine a pill that just, if you're, if you're grief-stricken, you take this pill and you are no longer grief-stricken and you can take it in any dose you want. Now, your child has died or your mother has died and you're in grief. Then the question is, how long do you want to be sad for? What, mm-hmm. what is normative? You know, mm-hmm. now, would it be normative to... 30 seconds after your child has died, mm-hmm. right? In fact, you, you, may, you're, you may still be in the presence of the body to just pop that pill in a sufficient dose to be restored to mm-hmm. perfect equanimity. I think most of us would feel that that is some version of chucking your grandmother in the yeah, trash. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't honor the connection. I mean, what, what does love mean if you don't shed a tear mm-hmm. when the person you love most has died? But finding what is normative there is is really a challenge. I, I don't know that there's any principle we can invoke or that we're ever going to find that is going to convince us that we have found the right point. But whatever feels comfortable at the end of the day there, I think is encapsulating all of the, the, the consequences that we feel or imagine we would feel in those circumstances. And a loss of connection to other people is certainly a consequence that mm-hmm. we're worried about. Yeah, absolutely. And also just if you never felt sadness at your child, de- like injury or death to your child, like I'm sure humans as a matter of fact would therefore like take less, like fewer steps to protect their children and so on. There'd be a like, whole host of, mm. I think, really bad consequences from that Yeah, um, quite plausibly. And yeah, I, in terms of the general framing, um, I agree with you in terms of frustrations at consequentialism where they create these cases where all sorts of real-world effects are just abstracted away. I mean, this is true for the question of how much to give as well, where um, in these debates, it's normally imagined that there is just this superhuman person who could just give all of their income to the lowest level and then not have any other areas of their life affected negatively. Mm. Um, But that's just a fiction. I mean, um, I think if someone thinks, well, I should give 10% because... If I give more, then I'm likely to burn out. And I'm like, yep, that's you should be really like attentive to your own psychology. Um, and that's like a really important consideration. Whereas that's the sort of thing that in arguments about consequentialism, for some reason, 
the critics and sometimes the proponents tend to miss out, tend to be very kind of simplified views of um, the consequences. Again, the problem comes back to the singer side of this conversation, which is if you're only giving 10%, mm-hmm. then you, you are still standing next to the shallow pond. It is one of those slippery slope conditions where you're just, once you acknowledge that there's this, the juxtaposition of your casual indulgence of your wants, mm-hmm. any one of which is totally dispensable. You could sacrifice it and your life would be, you'd be no worse off alongside the immediate need of someone who's intolerably deprived by dint of pure bad luck. I mean, your, your privilege mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is a matter of, of luck entirely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And all of the variables that, that produce it, no matter how self-made you think you are, you didn't pick your genes. You, you didn't pick the society into which you were born. You, do, you can't account for the fact that you were born in a place that is not now Syria fractured by the worst civil war in memory. Elon Musk is as self-made as anyone. He can take absolutely no responsibility for his intelligence, his drive, the mm-hmm, fact that mm-hmm. he could make it to America mm-hmm. and America was stable and he did it in a time when there was immense resources to help him do all the stuff that he's doing. So again, you're still, you're still at the pond and it feels like the conversation you would want to have with the person who says, well, if I give any more than 10%, I'm, it's going to kind of screw me up and I'm not going to mm-hmm. give mm-hmm. much and I'm, I'm not going to be happy. I'm not going to be effective. It sounds like there's still more Peter Singer style therapy to do with mm-hmm. that person, which is, well, listen, come on, 12%, 14%, that's mm-hmm. really moving you into a zone of discomfort. And there is no stopping point short of, well, listen, I could make more money if you would let me get on an airplane now and fly to the, mm-hmm. the meeting I'm now going to miss because mm-hmm. I don't have enough money for a ticket. And then you begin to invoke some of the, I think you call it earning to give mm-hmm. principles, mm-hmm. right? So which we can talk about. But unless you're going to bring in other concerns there where you can just, you can be more effective at helping more drowning children in mm-hmm. shallow ponds. Mm-hmm. You don't have an argument against Singer. Yeah, I think, so there's a distinction um, in consequentialist ethics between what gets called actualism and possibilism. And um, so supposing you have three options, you can uh, stay home and study, you can stay home and watch TV, or you can go to the pub with your friends. Mm. And the best option is staying home at studying, then going to the pub with your friends, and then worst is staying at home and watching TV. Um, but now you know that if you stay home, then as a matter of fact, you will just watch TV. You won't study, even though you ought to, even though that's the best thing to mm. do. So now the question is, should you stay home or should you go to the pub? And actualists say, well, you should go to the pub. You should just accept the fact that you're going to be fallible or weak-willed or immoral in the future. Um, possibilists would say, no, you ought, to stay ho- you ought to stay in home at study, therefore you ought to stay home. And I think this is a really important distinction um, when it comes to these questions of demandingness, because you could argue, well, what you ought to do over the your entirety of your life is maximize your donations until you hit the point at which the money you're spending is just leading to more donations. Um, that would be the kind of, therefore, you just ought to maximize that just now. That'd be the kind of possibilist viewpoint. The actualist would say, well, what as a matter of fact are you actually going to do in the future? if you increase your donations by a certain amount now. Mm. If it's the case that in the future you're going to say, screw that, like, 
say I ask you to give away all your savings, and then you think, well, actually, that means that in the future, I'm probably going to say screw this and just not continue, even though I think believe that I ought to continue, then you kind of should take that into account. And so I'm much more sympathetic to the actualist line as, um, as the people I know. Mm. And I think that has quite radical implications because it means that the question of just how demanding is this view is incredibly dependent on what a person's particular psychology is like. And I actually think that's kind of right. Um, once we accept that like level of moral motivation is just a kind of a starting fact about your like mental makeup in the same way as your IQ is and your height and so on. You know, if it was the case that, um, I don't know if this will be a good analogy, mm. but, uh, you know, the way that I can save lives is by doing slam dunks and I can't do slam dunks, um, sadly, but, um, can't do slam dunks. Then it'd just be like, well, you're just say- asking me to do something that's not like physically capable of doing. I think that you just can apply the same thing to level of moral motivation as well. When I'm saying, if I'd say to someone who isn't really morally motivated, oh, you should give away all of your money over the course of your life. And you can just say, well, I'm not, firstly, perhaps I'm just not actually capable of that really. But more importantly, if I try and do this, then I'm going to not continue to do it in the future. Mm. And so the approach I prefer is just saying, well, okay, try it with a certain amount. It's much more important to ensure you keep doing this over the long run rather than that you max out in the short run. And so then start giving, take easy steps that might start to kind of change your psychology in certain beneficial ways. So, you know, start giving a few percent of your income if you're like, you know, feel very nervous about doing this. Start to talk to people for whom this is just a normal part of your life. Like become friends with these people, see how it's like, doesn't actually affect your life in kind of really bad ways. And, you know, do that over perhaps a period of years. That's the sort of approach I'd want to advise. And Peter Singer being a consequentialist would say, well, if that's what's going to get the best results, that is what we should Mm. advise as well. Whereas it's easy, I think, and this is partly because of the way Peter frames it, um, it's easy to think that because this is the conclusion and Peter says, well, it's wrong to not donate all of your um, disposable income, that we should go around berating people who don't do that. But that's not what, you know, it's not Mm. what he believes. That's that's kind of taking common sense, non-consequentialist ethics and where you just blame, if someone does something wrong, you blame them. Whereas I think consequentialists use this term wrong quite a different way. Um, so sorry, there's a few things going on there. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, I think, and you, you acknowledge this, that there is a surprising power and, and really an unforeseeable power in meeting new people, putting yourself in new circumstances where you're having different behavior modeled to you, having conversations mm-hmm. you, you didn't know you were going to have. And I mean, so, uh, for instance, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you're, you were obviously always interested or for a very long time have been interested in moral philosophy and issues of this sort. So it's not a total surprise your life has taken this turn, but mm-hmm. you didn't start your philanthropic work until you met one other person who yeah, shared yeah, your interest. Absolutely. Yeah. Right? yeah. I mean, for me, that was huge. I felt very guilty for a number of years because I was pretty convinced by the Peter Singer arguments, but I wasn't really mm-hmm. doing anything. I was donating a few percent of my graduate stipend and thinking like this was a really big deal felt very alienated um felt somewhat like a sucker like everyone else is just kind of um mm. you know living this high life and i'm you know seem to be like much more concerned about use of my money and then just meeting all, all it took was one other person to form this tiny little tribe this little community me and him um to be like oh great now i can act in this way and the animal part of my brain mm-hmm. that's very very uncomfortable about doing things that are 
you know, not associated with a pack, as it were, was, you know, very significantly relieved. And in my own case, like, started off was like, okay, cool, yeah, I can give 10%. Um, then as these things, you know, as I got more used to the idea, it's like, yeah, okay, I think I could give more than that and mm. then increase that. For the very long time, I think I thought, well, you know, this will just be kind of consigned to the way I spend my money. I'd never change what career I was going to do on the basis of this. Whereas now as well, I'm like, no, actually, like I can, you know, even if it meant that I left philosophy and did other things, I'm like, actually, that would be partly that's because I'm much more, you know, I've learned a lot more about myself. I think it could be happy and thrive in a number of different things. Mm. But also just over time, these sorts of considerations of doing good just become part of, like it becomes almost boring, in fact. Um, certainly starts to feel a lot less moralized. It feels in the same way when you might make think major life decision, you just think, well, how does this fit into my long-term projects, you know, including my relationships, like where I want to be in 10 years and so on. Mm. It just feels like a consideration like that it f starts to feel much less like, well, morally, I ought to do this and I'm going to feel guilty if I don't and blame myself. Um, and that's been quite a common phenomenon, in fact, even among the people who got into effective altruism via this obligation framing and being convinced by Peter Singer, which is once you start putting it into practice, the, those kind of very moralized kind of guilt feelings start to go away and it starts to feel more like, you know, one major factor in your decision making kind of like any other, which has been mm. a really interesting psychological thing. Well, it is interesting because the your emphasis on, again, the opportunity side is very important. And I, and I do, because I've obviously lived with the conclusions of, of Peter Singer's argument for a long time and felt felt their irrelevance in a way, which is, which is not the same thing as having a mm -hmm. coherent argument mm -hmm. against mm -hmm. them, but just feeling like, well, I can't live that way. So now I don't have to be too explicit about what I am going to do, mm -hmm. right? So, and what you have done is by bringing in this other piece of saying, well, listen, here's, forget about the moralizing. Here's an opportunity that you can take in every so day. This to is something, yeah, I believe quite strongly. So, so since I've started taking these actions, I feel much, put aside all like moral philosophy and so on. I just feel like I'm living a much more authentic, autonomous life than I would have been otherwise. And I think this is true for a lot of people. I think that we live in a society where incentives are such that large companies spend vast fortunes basically manipulating you to believe that it's really important to buy crap that you don't need and that isn't going to actually benefit you. Mm. Even though I think deep down, many people, like if you look at how children act, like often much more compassionate much more likely to think, whoa, there's children just like me on the other side of the world who we can easily help. It's crucial that we do that, you know, in their own way. And so I actually think that acting where altruism is a much bigger part of your life, it's like for most people, again, just putting aside the moral philosophy, just genuinely living up to your own values. It's like being part of like self-actualizing, part of becoming who you really are. Mm. And we don't realize that because advertising distorts so significantly what what we think a good life consists in mm. um, where good life doesn't mean just morally good it just means good the sort of life that you would on deep reflection kind of want to live for yourself and so i think yeah we don't even need to get into these moral philosophy arguments really but just once you start really reflecting on what things are most important what would you want your life to look like at the end of your life i think you'd want altruism not to be all of it necessarily to be to be a core component yeah, this comes back to the salience issue. It's just insofar as you can make 
the good you are doing or can do salient and make the the consequences of not doing it salient to, to bring Singer in here, mm-hmm. it does, I mean, that, that salience does the philosophy for you. You know, yeah, it's like, yeah, a, you, yeah. you know, the, 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 the kid in drowning in two inches of water doesn't require an argument before you feel impelled to save him. Yeah. What our culture yeah. has done to us is provide a competing form of salience, which is truly captivating and has the predictable result. Now, bring in the component of time here, because mm-hmm. that's obviously time is money in some oh, yeah, yeah. way. And I mean, so how would you, how could you justify or could you justify having kids, given mm-hmm. your view? Yeah. So I think, um, like I want to say again, you know, even within consequentialism, a crucial thing is um, not letting, there's this phrase from Sidgwick, I think originally from Voltaire, which is not letting the best be the enemy of the good. Mm, yeah. And I think for kids in particular, this lears its head like very significantly. And so Julia Wise, who's a close friend and initially was just, she was, you know, working as a social worker in prisons um, and even then donating about half of her income. Um, so she was really like um, trying to do as much as she could. And she thought a lot about this question of whether to have children. And she, she now has two. And again, it was this idea of just, do I want to, if I'm engaging in alt, like altruism and trying to do good, do I want to do it in this hair shirt sort of way where everyone can see that I've like made really significant personal sacrifices in my life uh, such that I'm now this little model that looks like somewhat like mm. comparatively miserable existence or she, her blog post where she talks about this is called cheerfully mm. or do I want to say like, yeah, no, it's like still at the stage where I've been able to do so much good in a way that I feel like has only really made my life better. And I generally think the answer's clearly the latter. And so, you know, I think the key thing with when it comes to children is just like, I would immediately want to be really wary of people trying to over-optimize. Like, mm. I think that could go really, like, can go really badly wrong. Mm. And yeah, I almost worry that like the conversation of like, what's the cost-benefit analysis of having kids is... uh like a step too far i'm just i think we should just be like look if you if having kids is really important for you like you know ha- like have a family this is for many people a very important part of having like mm. um you know having a meaningful meaningful life do you think you'll have kids um i currently don't intend to um i'm still only 29 so yeah. there's plenty of time to mm. uh change my mind i mean that's not a commitment or anything not a fixed thing um partly i feel like the work i'm doing like i get such meaning from the work i'm doing and for the organization i've built and so on quite feels like i already have a child and mm. i'd somehow be betraying it if um i was to you know have these other very big commitments in my life but like i say that's something that um might change over the years so i guess there's another i just want to keep searching this space for mm-hmm. hidden assumptions that we we might not agree with or that mm-hmm. that we might have different different views on is it implicit in these considerations, I, I guess it is, at least as they're usually stated, that all lives are equal? Yeah. So I think the project of effective altruism does have the premise that actually all lives is of equal value. Um, I don't think, and then if there's like a, a real normative, comp- so effective altruism at its core is just an intellectual project of how can we benefit others by as much as possible. And then there's a secondary question of, well, what does that mean for our lives? where Peter Singer obviously argues it means a lot. Mm. 
and I think the best view would be something like, you know, and it's at least at least should be a significant part of your life to try and help others as much as possible. And that's kind of a statement within effective altruism, but not to go as far as saying in every decision you make in life, you have to act as if, um, like if it's a choice between your child and a stranger, that, you know, you have to privilege um, the two strangers' lives over your child's life or so on. Mm. And I think, you know, in promoting the concept of effective altruism, the thing I really want to identify is the fact that there is this incredibly important concept or part of morality that's currently very neglected that should be agreed upon by almost all different moral perspectives. Um, so, you know, it would be entailed by utilitarianism or consequentialism, but also by many other moral views as well. All you need is the premise that, you know, the welfare or well-being of all matters to some extent. It's more important to help people more rather than less. Hmm. And then if you do want to add in this normative component for people who are very wealthy by global standards, it's important. You know, it's important to use at least a significant a proportion of your resources to try and do good. That's the concept that I think is like both very important and should be very widely agreed upon by all sorts of different moral perspectives. Whereas the further claim of just this should be the whole of your life or all of your decisions should be made from this entirely impartial standpoint is I think then like at least reasonably a lot more controversial. And I think mm. you can easily have the former without needing to commit yourself to the latter. Well, if it, again, this kind of slippery things come in here. So, for mm. instance, if we if we if there's two children who are held hostage, and we can only save one, mm -hmm. and one we have every reason to believe will be the next Alan Turing and mm -hmm. do hugely creative and influential work that will better the world in in ways and and probably save many other lives, mm -hmm. and the other is just destined to be not a a, a mm -hmm. sociopath say, but just an average and averagely unproductive person by comparison yeah, yeah. with Turing, who do we save? Mm -hmm. Now, I, I think, well, respond to that. I have my own answer, but... Okay, yeah. I mean, so I think this is a case now where, again, we're just talking about the impartial consequences because I suppose they're both kind of strangers to you. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, in these sorts of cases where when you're saving lives, there's the benefit to the person. And then there's also all these indirect benefits of what they go on to do. And yeah, my view is that those indirect benefits or indirect consequences are just as important as the direct ones. Mm. And again, you can see this by other thought experiments. So now imagine that yeah, it's one person who's going to, you can save one life or you can save another person's life who can then, you know, immediately press a lever that will direct a trolley to save 10 others. Mm. In that case, it's like very clear that you want to save the one person who can pull the lever. Mm. And now in this description, as you've given of the person on the verge of a cancer cure or Alan Turing or something. That is just this case. Um, yeah. It's someone who's going to then go on. And it's just the case, again, that these people who are going to be benefited in this indirect way are kind of not salient. So mm. there, I think you should really, supposing this Alan Turing will do the amount of good of saving 100 lives, I think there you just should think of it as saving 101 lives versus saving one. And that's not to comment at all on the character of the people. Alan Turing didn't can't take ownership for his intelligence or oh, yeah. anything. Um, yeah, yeah. And, you know, we need to distinguish that. Yeah, except well, th and then think about the implications here. So this is one of those situations where more information becomes, in certain respects, toxic. So, mm -hmm. and when, when we're talking about salience, we're talking about information as well. So 
let's say we agreed with that. And now prior to rescuing hostages or mm-hmm. saving lives, we now feel tempted to, because again, this, many of these circumstances are, are triage cases by mm-hmm. their very nature, which is to say we can only save one life as opposed to two. So then why shouldn't cops and doctors and all other lifesavers pull the school records on kids mm-hmm. before they save them to see who has the higher IQ or who seems mm-hmm. more mm-hmm. promising because you know the net result of doing that a million times will be to select for more productive, more mm-hmm. useful people who will then build better societies, presumably, and save mm-hmm. lives. And insofar as we could make that information as clear as, well, this kid is the one who's standing next to the lever that's going to save 10 more people, mm-hmm. it becomes a no-brainer on, on this consequentialist logic. And yet, having a society where we made these truths yeah, yeah. explicit, and we, send, and, and we don't have this veil of ignorance which tells us, no, no, all kids' lives are equal. Mm-hmm. Whether they're here, they're in Africa, we have to save them. If we remove that veil of ignorance, it seems to me there is something toxic about that, and it is in some ways similar to just chucking grandma in the trash mm-hmm, after mm-hmm. she dies because you've, you've realized, well, wait a minute, she doesn't feel anything. Mm-hmm. I'm capable now of seeing this clearly enough n- of not feeling anything. She's just a bag mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. chemicals at this point, and my time and resources could be better spent not having a funeral, but yeah, yeah. helping the next kid. Yeah, so I think, um, yeah, this is, I think, just a really tricky issue, and it definitely comes up with healthcare where if you're thinking about how to prioritize, um, you know, do you, would you prioritize a treatment that helps someone who's like healthy and work like otherwise healthy, but, um, you know, who's just say it's like chronic back pain for someone who's 30 years old and is otherwise, otherwise would be very productive versus mm. kind of palli- palliative care for someone who's, you know, 75 and well retired. Normally when we do prioritize healthcare prioritization, um, we don't look at those like long run consequences. We just look at how much is uh, one person being benefited versus another in the kind of direct effects. And one argument for that, at least, is the fact that there seems to be a correlation between you know how much can people, how kind of productive are they going to be for society, and well, how much can they already pay for better healthcare mm. and so on. But I think that only takes you some of the way. And then a second thought is exactly this question of, well, what sort of society do we want to live in? Um, what sort of signals and messages do we want to send about concern for people? Where I think if we lived in a society where it's like, oh, you're no longer useful to us, we're going to throw mm. you in the trash, metaphorically speaking, or we're not going to give you any, we're not going to help you in the same way that we're going to help people who are more useful. Yeah, I imagine now not talking just about the character of individuals, but the character of society, Certainly, at least that sends, I think, like has pretty bad messages with respect to, or counterproductive messages with respect to messages we do want to convey, like egalitarianism, concern for mm. everyone. And so I think there's, yeah, really tricky kind of even just imp- like empirical issues there. So yeah, let's talk about just a few cases that are obviously relevant and, and the source that show up in the news. So you take something like the price of drugs. So. Mm-hmm. This has happened more and more now. You have pharmaceutical companies that just suddenly raise the price of some mm-hmm. life-saving mm-hmm. medication. Mm-hmm. And 
clearly motivated by just a, a pure profit motive. It mm-hmm. just you know what what the market will bear, mm-hmm. and and in some cases you know what the market can't even hope to bear, but they they still go for it anyway, seemingly. And yet you have this problem of incentives. So if you're not going to, I think most people's intuition here is, well, this is just wrong. You've mm-hmm. got kids mm-hmm. who are going to die because you're trying to make yeah. an yeah. extra buck. So the government has to step in and say. No, no, you gotta you gotta limit the price of an EpiPen at whatever it is, a hundred dollars. Yeah, you can't yeah. you can't raise it six hundred percent in a day. But then that obviously cancels the incentives to innovate yeah, the next yeah, yeah, billion yeah. dollar drug. Who's gonna go into this space if at any moment the profits that were recouping your investment yeah, yeah. can be just canceled by the hysteria of the marketplace? So how do you think about that? Yeah. So on that I do think yeah, I'm def I know a lot of people who yeah, think that it's completely immoral for there to be any sorts of um, patents on drugs and so on. And I think that's just not taking into account this incentive effect. And so I do think that there's this balancing act that's very tricky. Like patents are basically two wrongs trying to make a right, where in response to a market failure of one form, which is that R&D is really expensive and companies can't capture all the benefits, you put in place another wrong, which is giving um, a company a uh, legitimate monopoly for a certain period of time. Mm. And you kind of hope that these two wrongs cancel out. And so then where this balancing act is, like how long should patents last for? What sorts of, um, you know, like, like regulations you should have in terms of how much drugs cost and so on. I do think that's just this tricky balancing act question of wanting to obviously get medical care to as many people as possible. And then at the same time, incentivizing um, innovation and development that's huge benefits kind of in the long run mm. because as soon as drugs are generic which you know 20 years is not that long in the grand scheme of things then suddenly it provides vast benefits to absolutely everybody what about just having the government do this just just, just, just yeah search. just just acknowledge that there are certain things that only a disinterested government can do with tax dollars that the market can't really yeah i mean motivate. i think that should happen a lot more especially on the, the conditions. So there's this 90-10 effect where um, 90% of R&D or medical R&D goes on conditions that affect only 10% of um, the world's population. Hmm. So I'm not sure if this number's right, but something like the amount of R&D spending on male pattern baldness as far exceeds the amount of spending <laughs> right. on um, malaria. One can imagine. Yeah. yeah. And that's just a clear, like, clear demonstration of the way in which markets cannot be optimal for social welfare. And so I do think that, yeah, having got like, you know, potentially an awful lot more um, government spending, you know, on this kind of basic research, especially on those sorts of drugs that um, there isn't as much of a market for because the people who suffer for them, from them are very poor, so mm. just not able to pay as much. Yeah, I'd love to see you know, really quite considerably more of that. Yeah, I mean, the scary thing is that we are so short-sighted that, or the, and the market is just so blind to our deeper interests that, at least in this space, that forget about the difference between poor and rich. We can't get motivated to generate the next generation of, of life-saving antibiotics because mm-hmm. these are drugs that you only take once a decade. Yeah, yeah. But when you need them, the, this is the only thing standing between you and death rather yeah, often. Yeah, yeah. And we have, you know, we're, we've burned through all of our antibiotics mm-hmm. and yet we're, there's endless energy to produce the next antidepressant or 
any other medication that you're going to take on a daily basis, and and yet we are dealing with a, a crisis of antibiotic-resistant bugs now. I mean, another idea that um, can be quite good in fixing this is advanced market commitments. So um, a government would say, I will buy a certain number, supposing you develop a malaria vaccine or mm. something, um, with sufficiently good um, immunity rate. Uh, I will buy a certain quantity of this at a certain price. Because the issue is if you're funding just the research directly, then you as a government aren't the, you know, it's hard to know what to fund, like what's actually going to be most promising. Um, and you lose the benefit of kind of market competition and that driving innovation. Mm. Whereas if you say, look, there's this huge cash prize to whoever wins mm. the development of this thing in the form of us by commit, like legally committing to buy a certain number of this, then you can potentially get the best of both worlds. And you do that in exchange for, you know, them like giving up patent rights in certain ways and mm -hmm. so on. Um, that's the sort of thing. It's, I think, a fairly decent idea from economists, including Michael Kramer. And that's the sort of like uh, economic innovation, as it were, that can potentially get the best of both worlds. Yeah, that's, a, that's a, another great idea. But I remember what it was like to be struck by the play pump idea and, mm -hmm. and not see the downside, but not having seen kids get bored with that particular play pump yet it strikes me as a as a, a great idea yeah yeah now when you think about spending money and lots of money on things that are not obviously addressing the starkest human need but on many people's account are the sorts of things that make life worth living mm -hmm. so the space program mm -hmm. right now undoubtedly you, you can talk about some when we talk about existential risk or anything else that has perhaps a longer time horizon, but given its its gravity can can rise to the level of even our most immediate concerns, you could imagine how the space program is in the end mm -hmm. necessary for our the survival of the species. Mm -hmm. But I guess I'd like to focus on the things like the space program, but also like, you know, museums and the arts and mm -hmm. things that make mm -hmm. life worth living, but in any given comparison with the shallow pond or the child in it doesn't seem to survive scrutiny. How do you think about spending vast resources as we do on those things? Yeah, I mean, I think there's two questions. So one is just then, what should I as an individual do? And there, I think the answer is really, very clear, because these things are already getting vast amounts of funding. I mean, if you, you know, like, for example, most, the most famous museums have huge stockpiles of paintings and works of art that never see the light of day. Mm. And if they sold off, you know, even a fraction of them, 10% of them, they would have, you know, they'd never need, wouldn't need to take any donations for decades. And at least some people would be seeing them if they were in private ownership, rather than no one, which is the current situation. Um, so because these ideas are very compelling or like speak to people a lot, they tend to be very well funded. And so even for someone who cares a lot about the arts, let's say, I think like the marginal dollar there is just you're not really going to be achieving much. Mm. And so that, I think, is relatively clear. For the society as a whole, um, yeah, I think it's tricky. I do find it hard. To, like, while there are people who just ha don't have their basic needs met, the fact that people are spending money on, you know, maybe projects that make them feel really good or, like, like think it's important and so on. Yeah, I find it pretty hard to justify. So an example, you know, at Oxford, my college in Oxford, for example, um, if everyone in the world were spending money in effect, in what I thought of as the optimal way, would Oxford exist? And the answer, I think, is yes. 
And then would the lawns of Oxford be so immaculately mm. um, kept? And I think the answer is no. And so I think if the world were, if all the money were being spent in the way that was optimal in terms of social welfare, we still would have a lot of, you know, things driving technical, technological innovation, not artistic, scientific, moral progress. Uh, but I think in the world we're in at the moment, we're just so far away from that. We're so far in the direction of funding things that seem really cool or speak to people who are already very well off mm. that additional spending we're making at the moment just shouldn't go on those causes. This may seem like a bewildering lateral mm -hmm. move, but uh, there is actually a point of connection in my mind. What, what's your feeling on how to address the migrant crisis and just what, what's your view on, of immigration and the ethics there? This is a great question of philosophy hitting the real world, I think, mm. because the philosopher's answer is just, oh, well, I think there should be open borders. Um, I just don't think there should be boundaries between different countries. I think people have a right to move between different countries and that preventing someone who's very poor from entering a rich country is just like, you know, imagine you, ha you had a marketplace within a town and you had kind of bodyguards that were just preventing people who just wanted to come into that marketplace and trade so they could feed their family. Um, and you were just physically stopping them from doing so. We think that was a horrible thing to do, but it seems just analogous with the question of border control. Uh, and then similarly from an economic perspective as well, um, free trade of goods across countries, so the result of globalization, has generated huge amounts of value through specialization. Um, free trade of labor would um, do just the same. So that's a kind of pure philosopher's answer. But then once you start actually actively make, actually then I say, well, what policies should we have in place? Again, you've got to take into account all of these messy empirical factors. So for example, in the UK, do I think it was good that the UK had massive immigration from the EU in, um, like in the 20th century? Uh, and, sorry, 21st century. And I guess I have to say that as a matter of fact, no, I don't think it was good because it led to massive anti-immigration sentiment that led to the UK voting to leave the EU, mm. um, which I think is a far worse consequence than the benefit from more additional immigrants. And so um, I take that as like quite an important lesson for me as a philosopher in general, which is you've got to be aware of equilibrium effects. Um, yeah. But it also then means that um, what I would want to do with respect to immigration is, yeah, ca you know, campaign for the rights of immigrants for the importance counter like so many of the myths about immigration being bad for the country of like people have this view like there's a fixed number of jobs or something and the immigrants take those jobs mm. whereas basically from a per capita economic standpoint immigrants don't really do much actually um by far the biggest economic effect is the effect on the immigrant is themselves uh but that would have to be like a more gradual change in like people's you know cultural viewpoints and attitudes um, that would have to be a much slower process. And then there is also the worry about, you know, killing the goose that lays the golden egg, as it were. Yeah. I think the fact that we've got some countries with really good institutions that are amazingly productive, you know, this is actually quite unusual. I think we should, you know, think that we lucked out that the fact that countries like the US and the UK, for all their very, very many problems, actually work pretty well. That's a very unusual place to be in as a human. Yeah. Um, and so the kind of vision in answer to your question, then the vision I'd have in the long run would be something like open borders. And then I'd want to be very, very cautious in the kind of steps that we take mm. um, to get there. Uh, I'm interested in what the link was between that question and... Well, yeah, it, so it, it, is, it does come down to 
an equilibrium effect, which is, so there's this, obviously this massive disparity in the quality of institutions and quality of life mm -hmm. across borders, which motivates the urge for migration, both economic and political. So we're talking about refugees mm -hmm. and we're talking about economic migrants mm -hmm. as well. Life is better on the other side of the wall, hence mm -hmm. millions of people want to cross over. That motive would only finally dissipate when life was more or less equivalent on both sides of the wall. Mm -hmm. There's, 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 yeah, there's yeah, no yeah, good reason yeah. to come to the U.S. because the U.S. is very likely just as bad or just as mediocre mm -hmm. as the Middle East or North Africa, if in fact that is what would happen if we truly open the borders. I think there may be a, a somewhat misleading picture we get from the consequences of the trickle of mm -hmm. immigration we get and enjoy as, mm -hmm. as cheap labor, essentially, mm -hmm. and it obviously improving the lives of those who come to our societies, yeah, yeah. benefit from our law and order and our, our institutions. But if you just imagine opening all the borders to the developed world, well then, and let's just turn that into a proper thought experiment, not only open the borders, but make it easy and in fact effortless to come, mm -hmm. right? So it's mm -hmm. not, you don't have to get into a boat and risk, you yeah, know, the yeah. Mediterranean. We're going to pay for you to come because we are committed to your well-being and mm -hmm. we're opening mm -hmm. the borders to, to mm -hmm. give you our life. Then in reality, you're going to import millions upon millions of people whose social attitudes and commitment to things like free speech mm -hmm. and everything else that is at the bedrock of of making life in the first world as good as it is, mm -hmm. their commitments are going to be no better once they arrive than they were mm -hmm. in Eritrea or Sudan or or anywhere else. And so, yeah, I mean, in principle, I, I ethically agree that that our default should be mm -hmm. all lives are 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 equivalently valuable, and we are just lucky. And that luck and that luck imposes a kind of moral burden on us mm -hmm. to spread the luck insofar mm -hmm. as we can. But so much of what is good in, in human life is the result of us being able to take certain institutions and, yep. and cultural yep. achievements for granted. We're not constantly having to man the barricades and yep. defend yep. Yep. free speech from people who want to have cartoonists killed, right? So insofar as we're opening the borders would just import more and more people who are, forget about just to take the explicit case, which, or the narrow case, which I spent a lot of time focusing on, of the problem of jihadism and is Islamist theocracy. Forget about the jihadists for the moment. If you're just going to solve the migrant crisis by opening the borders of Europe to anyone who wants to come out of the horror show of, of the civil war in, in Syria and Iraq, well, you're going to get a certain small percentage of people who are jihadists. And so that's so the question is, how many is too many there? Mm -hmm. Obviously, most won't be jihadists, but you're, you're going to get a much larger percentage of people who, while they may have no sympathy with the jihadists or very little sympathy, they will have social attitudes mm -hmm. that, that make them highly resistant to assuming the values of the West. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're going to want their daughters to never be caught holding the hand of a man who's not a blood relative or their mm -hmm. husband. If they are, they're going to be tempted to execute an honor killing on her. Needless to say, they're not going to want cartoons of the prophet published in, in a newspaper. And all of the, this whole commitment to, for lack of a better word, theocracy, that doesn't actually entail suicide bombing, but mm -hmm. also doesn't entail making life in our societies good in the way that we would define good. So the question is, 
if you took seriously this moral imperative of opening bo- the borders as fast as possible, mm-hmm. given the need, mm-hmm. right? How much are you willing to erode the good things mm-hmm. in life, and 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 th- therefore have to and and to subsequently have to to allocate your resources toward defending the good things? I mean, like I say, I, I view honestly, I view most of my career at this point as a massive opportunity cost. Most of what I spend my time talking about, mm-hmm. I do not find intellectually interesting, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but I find it politically and morally necessary, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So in, in this area of, of you know, the, the clash between science and religion, mm-hmm. you know, the, kind of the, the moral reasoning I put toward things like honor killing. Like, 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 well, how is it even possible that I am living a life where I even have to know what the phrase honor killing means, right? Mm-hmm. Much less spend any time talking about it. But if we decide to open the borders, the entire world becomes mm-hmm. Jerusalem, essentially. Yeah. Uh, and so that's, that's... Yeah, I mean, so this is, you know, yeah, one aspect of the general... Like, at the moment, we don't really know what, like, massively increased immigration would be like. Um, so I think of it more like... I mean, there's actually a few things you can do. So one is um, uh, simply just turn the faucet on more or less, mm-hmm. just how many people... Um, uh, you let you letting into the country. Um, a second is like also in terms of which countries. Like one thing that's just to- like why is there not an open border between Canada and the U.S.? Like I don't I actually mm. just don't see any reason for this. Like they're very culturally similar and so on. Um, or like you know very limited. Um, so in those cases where you think, or just you know between the U yeah U.K. and U.S. It's incredibly difficult to get a visa. Um, very, and you can't to come to the UK. You can't even just come and volunteer <laughs> if you're coming from the US. You just can't come and give your labor for free. Um, so there's a number of restrictions there, and you could think like on a broader scale as well. So um, if you yeah, even if you think like yeah, for some cultures there's going to be much greater kind of cost in terms of the clash of cultures. Uh, so then the second aspect is from you know, which countries you're, say, letting more people in from. Um, different cultures um, vary a lot. And then from some countries, you might have greater worries about um, security, impact on culture, um, uh, like, you know, as well as just productivity, um, in addition to rates of criminality and so on. Um, but then that's also something that we can just um, vary in terms of our immigration policy, which mm. we do to some extent at the moment, but we could do much more so. Uh, finally, as well, is that there are some things that, for you know, big worry often is just well, immigrants are coming and they are going to be bad for the country economically. They're going to, you know, take jobs or compete with low-income workers and so on. Um, use up infrastructure as well, like rely on infrastructure that's already been built. But I mean, you could just um, account for those t- um, costs via taxes. Like I think the idea of having like an immigrant tax is just perfectly reasonable because it's like, well, kind of coming to the country is a huge benefit for you. Like so far you hadn't been con- like contributing to the public services that you're going to be using, but and then use those taxes to um, ensure that the people who might be made worse off by immigration, such as the um, lower skilled workers who are competing alike, uh, have other benefits such that like actually it ends up being a win-win for for everyone. Mm. Um, so I think there's just, I completely agree with you. If I had like a button that could just open all the borders right now, I would not do that. Um, I think it would be chaos. 
but that that is like the long of our name um and i think in general like glader mixing of cultures tends to perhaps my optimistic belief is that the um the better viewpoints will prevail in the marketplace of ideas yeah, yeah. over the long run um but then there's this difficult question of law if that even if that were the aim how would we get there and i'm you know very sympathetic to the idea that you want to go very slowly and carefully and monitor and um there's a you know various ways in which you can make that could make that transition kind of very gradual so i guess a, a final topic would be i'm embarrassed that we won't spend three hours on this <laughs> because it's, this is an area of, of mutual interest and huge consequence potentially but just the the area of existential risk and mm-hmm. i guess we could throw in our mutual ai concerns mm-hmm. there but i want to connect it to the very difficult issue of population ethics mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. perhaps you can describe let's let's talk for a moment about why population ethics is just difficult to think about mm-hmm. and it seems to me when we're talking about existential risk, when we're talking about the survival of the species, mm-hmm. we're talking about not just everyone now, we're talking about all future generations who may yet be uncreated by our yep. misadventures or the asteroid impacts we don't prevent or the AI that kills us or whatever it is. So, yeah, when it comes to so existential risks, things that could kill all of us, um, clearly the death of the seven billion pe- deaths of the seven billion people on the planet would be a bad thing. But then the big philosophical question is, of the hundreds of trillions of people who are yet to come, so even if the human race just lives as long as our closest ancestor, um, at the same population levels that we're at now, that would be about 500 trillion people still to come in the future. Mm. So the number of people who might exist um, who would no longer come into existence if we, an asteroid hit us tomorrow um, is absolutely vast. And so the question is, well, what should we think about that? Um, and that gets us into the field of population ethics, which I think is one of the most difficult areas of ethics and perhaps the most important, certainly one of the most important areas of ethics. And the reason it's so important is because, um, you know, these are huge decisions, like the different views on population ethics radically affect, um, what our global priorities ought to be. Um, but also that I think you can demonstrate that the common sense views about population ethics are definitely wrong so the common sense view seems to be that morality is about making people happy not making happy people and that there's not there's no moral reason to have one extra person kind of exist in the future even if that person has a good life because you're not really benefiting them you're just bringing them into existence Mm. even if they have a good life um but i think that's got to be wrong um and it's a little hard to explain there's a few reasons. So one is that if you imagine bringing someone into existence with a horrible life, like a life of torture, 100 years of torture, and then they die, people would say, oh yeah, that's really bad. So they have to say that this is some asymmetry where it's bad to bring into existence um, terrible lives, but not good to bring into existence good lives. Yeah. Um, but the more general reason is if you imagine you can add this extra person, um, call him Harry, to the population, um, at let's say well-being level six, um, which is like reasonably good life. Mm. Um, if you have the view that there's nothing good about that, then you'd have to say the world in which Harry doesn't exist is as good as the world in which Harry exists at well-being level six. But now, if you consider another option, adding Harry to the population with well-being level eight, um, if again you think, well, it's just not good to add happy people to the population, you'd have to say that 
the world with no Havi is as good as the world with Havi at well-being level eight. But now mm. you've said that the world with Havi at well-being level eight is as good as the world with Havi at well-being level six. Mm. But it seems clear that the world with Havi at well-being level eight is better than the world with Havi at well-being level six. It's better for one person, worse for no one. And yeah. so we seem to have gotten a contradiction based on this assumption that it's not good to add you know, people whose lives have are worth living. Um, and, and if you added a billion Harrys or 10 billion Harrys at level eight, all of a sudden you have completely changed the, the hedonic picture of mm -hmm. the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a much happier world mm -hmm. than would have otherwise been the case. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's right. So once we reject that you know, intuitive view, then we have to ask, okay, well, how do we evaluate different populations of different size? Um, and one view called the total view is just that you should just maximize the amount of happiness in the world. And if you mm. can increase happiness by, by having more happy people, by increasing the population size, just as you can increase happiness by extending someone's life or making them happier, then um, that's a good thing to do. Now, do you want to bring in the repugnant conclusion? The repugnant conclusion, yeah. So Derek Parfit, um, who we've mentioned already, um, came up with a, what seems like a counterexample to this view which is if you imagine a population, you know, this kind of bliss, utopian world of there's 10 billion people who have incredibly happy lives, just as happy as the people who have the best lives today, let's say. And they all live for 100 years and it's just wonderful. And now, um, suppose, take that world and now compare it with a different world, which have people who are just about, lives just worth living. They're like, you know, pretty drab, nothing much happens in them. In Parfit's case, he says they listen to Muzak and eat potatoes. Mm -hmm. So overall, they were like, yeah, I guess it was better for me to be alive than um, not alive, but only just. Mm. Like, if, you know, if I could just continue the rest of my life in a coma, I'd only be mildly against that. Mm. Um, and so they, their well-being, lifetime well-being is like 0 0.00001. But there's just some number of them, like some very large number of them. On the total view, it would have to say that for some number of people with these drab lives that are barely worth living, that's a better world than the world of 10 billion people with absolutely ex you know, ecstatic, blissful lives. Mm. Because all of these tiny little drops of well-being across, let's say, quadrillions it's the, it's the of people integral, yeah. just adds up to a greater volume than the very large amounts of well-being among these uh, 10 billion people who are living these wonderful lives. Mm. And, and if that's, I should just yeah. say that if it's not obvious to you listeners, you can see, I mean, Parfit explains this, if I recall, in, in Reasons and Persons, you can get from condition A to condition B in a stepwise fashion. So you can imagine mm -hmm. a world where people are still extraordinarily happy, almost as happy as you could possibly be, but just a little bit less happy. But there are many more of them than in condition A. And that clearly that's a better world because we're just talking about we're talking about one person who's as happy as you could possibly be in condition A. Mm -hmm. And in condition B, we're talking about millions who are just a hair less happy than mm -hmm. as happy as you can be. But now you keep going in a stepwise fashion until you reach the world where people are, are have just the minimal possible positive life, but there are, you know, trillions upon trillions of them. So mm -hmm. it is a slippery slope unless you're going to erect some kind of barrier that suggests, well, no, there's a minimum standard of positivity that we're not going to go past. We're no, we're no mm -hmm. longer going to care about the aggregate if we can't go to the Louvre and eat 
pastries and drink cappuccino. Mm-hmm. In any case, so, so what? So what's? How do you think about? Okay, yeah. So this is you start to sketch an argument that forms the basis of uh, what philosophers and economists call an impossibility theorem, um, and that's a scary word, a scary term, but just means there are sets of statements that represent intuitions that we have very, very deeply that we think yes. Reading that in isolation, it's just got to be true, morally speaking. And some of those conditions are things like adding more happy people to the world doesn't make, and not changing anything else, doesn't make the world worse, for example. Or that if you can make everyone better off, uh, that's a better world. Mm. And so you can take collections of those statements and show that they're mutually inconsistent. And that's why population ethics are so hard. Uh, And so, I mean, another case is you don't even need to just compare the world of one person with a million people who are like slightly worse off. You can get there just by saying, well, take one person who's extremely well off and now just add a whole bunch of happy people. Um, you know, they've got really good lives. Um, not quite as good as that first one, but still really good lives. Mm. Parfait calls that mere addition. Mm-hmm. And maybe even it makes that first person a little bit better off as well. So right. even better for this person. You say, okay, well, at least just say that's not bad. So we'd say, yeah, obviously that's not bad. And now I just take that larger population and say, okay, well now just suppose we could rearrange things such that this one person is made a bit worse, a little bit worse off, but everyone else is brought up to his level. So that increases the total welfare of this population, the average welfare, mm-hmm. and it's more egalitarian. So it seems like any principle should endorse that. Mm. But through that exact same mechanism of just adding a bunch more happy people and then kind of av- like bring them all balancing, up. yeah balancing yeah bring them all up to this egalitarian um situation again you get you end up with this what perfect calls a repugnant conclusion um and so the question is well what do we do um so some philosophers just actually want to basically give up on ethics as a result of this because they find it so hard perfect has said to me that he'd prefer to just give up on ethics, basically, than um, believe a repugnant conclusion. Hmm. I think that's much too strong. I think, so there's an awful lot of different theories of population ethics. I think the best one is the total view, um, even though it has this seemingly repugnant implication. Hmm. Um, And so I believe that not on the basis of moral intuition, but on the basis of philosophical argument of looking at all the different possible positions. And... um, that means that when we think about existential risk, it becomes extremely important indeed. That loss of the, let's say, 500 trillion lives in the future, um, on the total view, that's just as bad as if there was another planet that was about to be hit with an asteroid that had 500 trillion people on mm-hmm. it at the moment who, let's say, they weren't going to reproduce, so it was just a fixed mm-hmm. population. Um, it's just as bad, kind of morally speaking, in which case ensuring that um, you know, we continue humanity's great story, we're able to continue into the future, becomes overwhelmingly important um, on that total view. This could be a very lazy way out, but I, I think about the repugnant conclusion and some of the other paradoxes that Parfit introduces for which neither he nor anyone else has an adequate answer, kind of like the paradoxes of Zeno, where mm-hmm. before anyone had figured out how to sum the infinite series, and so you see the, the paradox is, if you're going to walk from A to B, mm-hmm. you first have to walk halfway. Yeah. So you're at the midpoint between A and B, and then you have to walk halfway between the uh, mm-hmm. half mm-hmm. the remaining distance. Yeah. And then half again, and then half again, and you can 
you can imagine an arrow being shot out of a bow toward a target. It first has to go halfway and then half again, then half again. And so no one ever arrives anywhere Mm -hmm. because you keep cutting the remaining distance in half. Well, obviously the world doesn't work that way. It took a while for mathematicians to understand the answer to that seeming paradox. Yeah. And I think it, I actually have forgotten the, the history here, but I think it was some centuries in philosophy before anyone had an adequate yep, response yep, to yep. Zeno. So I feel like that it does have that character for me a little bit where it's just, okay, it is true that you can go in this mm-hmm. stepwise way and get to this conclusion where lives that are barely better than not having existed at all, the worst imaginable but still positive life is better in sufficient number than billions upon billions of ecstatically happy, creative, intelligent, and unimaginably happy, creative, Mm -hmm. intelligent Mm -hmm. beings of a sort we could only hope to be. That just seems flat out wrong, and Mm -hmm. yet there's no question you can keep cutting the distance in half. So I think that analogy is a reasonable one, and I think it's reasonable to hold out hope for what Parfit calls theory X, which Mm -hmm. can get all the intuitions right. And there's been some great work um, happening at Oxford, including by a graduate student I'm supervising, um, which is showing, this will now start getting a bit technical, but there's certain um, technical assumptions made in these impossibility theorems uh, that don't actually seem that morally relevant, like um, that welfare is discrete rather than continuous, which means that there's basically the idea is there's a fundamental increment of mm-hmm. well-being. So there's a difference between 10.1 and 10.2 and nothing in between. Mm-hmm. Um, and you actually do need that assumption in order to make the impossibility theorems work. And some philosophers at Oxford, including Matt Clark, my graduate student, has been showing you can avoid those impossibility theorems if you relax this assumption mm. and get a view where for any given well-being level, such that there's an increase of well-being, if that's sufficiently great, then there's a sufficiently small increase of well-being in terms of adding people such that no amount of that will outweigh this large amount of well-being. Hmm. And that seems quite, actually seems quite powerful. It seems quite general for those people who are really wedded to the impossibility theorems as, you know, things like wanting to avoid the repugnant conclusion. And um, I think it seems like a very powerful way out, but it has a cost as you might have expected. Cost is grab that Picasso off the wall and leave your child. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The cost is that it makes well-being non-separable. It's again the technical term. But what that means is that the decisions you ought to make today become determined by, in part, by how many people have already existed and how well off they've been. Um, Where it seems like if we're decision, making a decision about how much should we care about existential risk, mm-hmm. intuitively it seems irrelevant, like how many e- Egyptians were there in ancient right, Egypt right. and how well off were they and so on. I mean, th- th- this if, is actually, yeah. there are some thought experiments in Reasons and Persons that cover this territory where mm-hmm. it, can, it could seem like the value of, of, of every present life is conditioned upon how happy the ancient Egyptians were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I forgot the details of that. Yeah. but And that seems really strange. But if what yeah. you care about, for example, if what you care about is just, you know, in part the average happiness of everyone, mm. um, then when you think, should, I, um, should we increase the population with more people, in order to know whether that's increasing average happiness or decreasing it, we need to know, well, how well off were all these people in the distant past. Right. 
Right. Um, and that starts to seem really weird as well. Your student's work doesn't rely on the average measure, does it? Because the average measure is a scary one because then you just kill all the unhappy people today and you've, you've raised the average. That's yeah, effortless. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't rely on the average okay. at all. Um, it's um, some really complex, like diminishing marginal value function. I can't wait to see it. So yeah. keep keep me in the loop when that dawns. So let's just do a final pass on this issue of existential risk and mm -hmm. how you think about the reasonableness of, of thinking about it, mm -hmm. allocating time to things that seem to the untutored ear highly speculative mm -hmm. in terms of pressing concern. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I first got introduced to the topic when I first met Toby Ord in 2009 and told me about giving what we can, this conversation that really changed my life in this direction. And when he first mentioned that he was concerned by existential risk, I thought he was literally insane. Mm. <laughs> um, I had a very negative reaction to it. And it was so it's own and I think that's kind of reasonable because it sounds kind of sci-fi. Um, yeah. but then over time, I think H had um, he been influenced by Bostrom or is is Bostrom the like the first guy in this space or or not? That's right. I mean, yeah, Nick Bostrom and Elias Yukowski were the two people who I think were most mm. leading concern about this issue. And Toby was influenced by Bostrom, who's right. Oxford as well. Yeah. Um but then over time, I mean just firstly the thought of just, yeah, well, what are the, some of the most important things for human civilization to be doing? Well, one is just not committing suicide as, um, you know, as a species. Seems like actually kind of common sense that that would be a really mm. important priority. Um, helping to ensure that this, the human story continues into the future. Um, you know, we talk a lot about environmental stewardship and, um, you know, preserving the planet for future generations. This is just that, uh, um, but taken even more seriously again. Yeah. And similarly, you know, we, when we watch disaster movies like, you know, Deep Impact and movies about uh, asteroids hitting and so on, you know, it's just uncontroversial. Of course, it's of crucial importance to blow up this asteroid and save everyone, like save everyone on the planet. Mm. Um, and part of the reason for that is because of the, because it's important to, you know, achieve all the things we're going to achieve in the future. Um, I do think people, some people have an intuition though, that what is important certainly in ethics is just not causing suffering mm -hmm. or mitigating suffering. And so that if you could concoct a scenario where the lights just go out, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, what's wrong with all of us dying in our sleep tonight painlessly? Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's clearly not a matter of suffering mm -hmm. because it's painlessly. So yeah. some people I think have a sense, a, it's a, obviously a quite a nihilistic one, but mm -hmm. a sense that, well, there's not actually something wrong with that. Mm -hmm. It's like that from, it's only our parochialism that makes us feel like there's something wrong with that. But as we've just suggested, the other side of the, of the ledger is all of the good that never gets done, all mm -hmm. of the happiness yeah. that never gets lived yeah. as a result of that cancellation. In fact, the, if we live as a species for billions of years and migrate to populate mm -hmm. the, mm -hmm. the stars, the vast majority of good experiences are in the future yep. and yep. and to and to pull the stopper on on those is to cancel in advance all of the creativity and insight and mm -hmm. beauty that could be enjoyed yep. so yep. i mean you have to care about that in order to care about existential risk otherwise yep. otherwise you're yep. just then con your concern is really just how painful it might be to get hit by an asteroid or suffer some other collision yep. with reality that kills us yeah and so yeah so i think that I mean, there are some people who have that kind of nihilistic bent. Though once you start asking them, well, supposing your mom died 
painlessly tonight? Like, would you feel sad about that? Would you think that's a loss because they weren't able to continue to live? And most people say yes. Like, or in my own case, like, yeah, I would not want to die painlessly tonight because not because it's going to be I'm going to suffer because of the loss of the benefits that I'll accrue in the rest of my life. So it's thinking about the same mm. thing, but on the global scale. Um, I think the second aspect of the thing that um, I certainly used to and people often find weird is then just the particular focuses that people have, which often relate to very new technology. Um, so developments in synthetic pathogens. So the ability, the fact that in the coming years, more and more, we're going to have the ability to just create man-made viruses. Um, geoengineering is another existential risk. The fact that even now we ha just have the technology to radically alter the Earth's climate, and it's actually not even that expensive. Mm. And then final one that gets a lot of um, attention as well is artificial intelligence. And then I think that people, yeah, then get weirded out there because um, it sounds science fiction. But I think people often just don't realize, like, actually, firstly, how advanced some of the technology already dealing with is and secondly secondly yeah just how fast it's going and thirdly it's not like anyone thinks this is definitely going to kill us all you know the coverage of ai is just always you know terminators and so on mm. i don't actually know anyone who really believes that you know even elon musk uh not that i know him personally but when he talks about the stuff more he's just getting carried away sometimes but what is true is just it's going to be like developments of artificial intelligence over the coming century very plausibly going to be one of the biggest um, technological transitions mm. of the 21st century. And as with many very major technological transitions in the past, but I think especially in this one, has the potential to go extremely well, but also has the potential to go extremely badly. And so it seems pretty reasonable when we're talking about um, problems on this scale to think to have a conversation about how can we ensure that we harness the benefits and avoid the risks. Well, I think listeners are... are somewhat aware of my views on this matter. And I, I have a TED Talk coming out in uh, a couple of weeks that that encapsulate them in 14 minutes. So I, I won't inject that here. But do you differ from Bostrom at all in your appraisal of the problem? Or do you just mm -hmm. you basically see it the way he sees it? Yeah, I mean, I'll definitely confess to not being a specialist on this topic. So I have to defer it a lot. But um, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think Bostrom in general... Um, in general, I'm kind of very sympathetic. I think there are very significant um, risks to creating agents that are much smarter than yourselves, to like extremely powerful artificial intelligence that behaves in, open scare quotes, creative ways. Mm. Um, and that if you've got agents that are um, much more powerful than yourself, um, much smarter, um, that have certain goals, there are certain instrumental goals there which are capturing the sources and stopping people who might want to destroy you or have you stop your goals, which looks pretty dangerous in terms of um, how they might interact with humans. I think one difference of emphasis, so a lot of discussion that AI is on the ensuring things go well is focused on um, what's called safety and especially with respect to a hard takeoff, like where we move from you know, pretty good narrow artificial intelligence that's very smart in one domain to human level and then greater than human level general intelligence in a very short period of time, like a matter mm. of years. Um, and that's possible. I don't think anyone thinks of it as the most likely scenario. And so instead, I kind of, at least in terms of what I tend to think about or focus on, is more just if this is a gradual transition, but a completely kind of earth-altering one, um, ultimately, how do we ensure that we use, like, 
you know, we use this new technology and this transition in a way that's going to be as good as possible. So rather than merely thinking about the binary of um, we continue as usual or everyone gets killed, mm. um, instead thinking, well, actually, this is like one of maybe one of the turning points of human civilization. It could easily just go in a wrong direction. Like yeah. if, you know, if we don't think very seriously about what's the morally right thing to do, is it the case that spreading to the stars is like the moral imperative? Um, if so, what should society look like? And so on. Um, I think there's, you know, very clear risks of um, path dependence there where we could set off on a wrong trajectory. Yeah, I want to like, personally want to just have people thinking more about this very large scale question of morally speaking, what are we as a race like actually trying to achieve? Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's not quite captured by the mere like kind of binary, do we live or do we die question. Right. And even if you imagine a perfectly well-behaved AI, which mm -hmm. was so that all the safety concerns are solved, then you still have the question of how do we politically and economically absorb the emergence of what is in fact right. the perfect labor-saving device. So, yeah, you know, yeah. how do you spread the wealth given that you now have a, a machine that will generate as much wealth as possibly can be generated? And if we don't have a mechanism to spread that wealth, if we don't have an, an ethics and a politics that now delinks people's survival and the value of their of their place in society from what they produce, mm -hmm. because now we're we're in a world where you don't actually yeah, yeah. shouldn't have to produce anything. I mean, there there should be no more drudgery. Yeah, you know, yeah. if you get this machine doing all that it can do for long enough. So it's humbling to realize that even in the the special case of knowing that the AI is safe, we've solved mm -hmm. what, mm -hmm. what Bostrom calls the control problem or the safety problem. We still have a massive challenge now. Yeah, if it yeah, was just absolutely. handed to us, I would expect total chaos. Yeah, yeah. So well, listen, Will, it's really been great to talk to you. Yeah, it's been absolutely, yeah, it's been an absolute joy. I hope it's just the first of many occasions. And, yeah, I agree. And you're doing, it, it's, it's really heartening to see someone doing philosophical work where the translation between the, the thinking and the good in the world is in no sense indirect or hypothetical. I mean, I mean, you're you're so obviously changing minds, and the and the change that is being accomplished is translating directly into doing good, mm -hmm. and arguably the the most tangible good that can be done. Mm -hmm. It's you you found you've created really a, an amazing niche for yourself. So yeah, well, thanks. So. It's yeah, it's an exciting movement to be part of. I hope to ride your coattails in that direction because it's obviously a good one to be going in. Uh, be very happy with that. Yeah, well, to be continued. So I love that conversation. I'm not sure that came across enough as I struggled to cover all the philosophical bases I wanted to cover. But as a closing, I just want to tell you what I loved about it. More or less all I do now is talk about ideas and write about ideas and try to oppose bad ones with good ones. And I'm constantly making arguments and exploring issues for the purpose of changing people's beliefs and either solidifying or changing my own in the process. But far too often, the, the real-world consequences of changing a person's mind aren't obvious. If I convince you that there's more of a conflict between science and religion than you realized, or that Islam needs to reform in a way that Mormonism doesn't, or that free will is an illusion, or that artificial intelligence will pose special dangers in the future, there often isn't a 
clear course of action to take. If I, if I convince you of any of those things, what are you going to do differently tomorrow? The best I can hope for as a result of this kind of work is that you'll think and speak differently about these issues and that this will gradually change the world we're living in. But from time to time, one finds a topic where a good argument can lead directly to action. In fact, in certain cases, accepting the argument or realizing that you don't have a counter-argument demands action. And Will has got one of these topics in hand, and he's just hammering away on it. And the effective altruism movement, which he essentially started with a friend, is doing something very interesting. Now, I've obviously thought about these issues before, and giving money to worthy causes has been something I've been doing for a very long time. But I've never been especially systematic about it. And I've never been satisfied with the relationship between my behavior and my ethical philosophy. As I said in this podcast, I don't think there's a great argument against Peter Singer's framing of the issue, where all of us, by virtue of not giving almost all of our wealth away, are essentially standing by a shallow pond watching yet another child die because we don't want to get our clothes wet. I'm convinced that the basic analogy is sound. The most that I can say, I think, is that this isn't the whole story, and that this negative judgment about our inaction leaves something out of the picture. But I'm not convinced that it leaves so much out that the basic claim is false. It clearly isn't false. Every day, each of us spends time and money on our less-than-necessary aims in a world where millions of people through no fault of their own, are suffering the worst forms of deprivation. Deprivation which, if it were ever to appear directly on your doorstep so that you couldn't ignore it, would demand a response. I mean, for instance, I just spent $25 on lunch in a restaurant. And this was after doing a podcast with Will. Now, was this lunch essential to my survival? No. Was it essential for me to eat out in a restaurant to pursue some economic end that would allow me to help the poorest people on earth in a way that I couldn't otherwise? No. I just felt like eating out when I could have eaten home far more cheaply and probably sent $23 to some worthy charity. On this analysis, I may not be exactly the same as a person who just watched a child drown in a shallow pond, but I'm not entirely different either. Only the lack of salience that Will and I spoke about accounts for that difference. It's only because the misery and death of people far away from me hasn't been made sufficiently vivid so that I can no longer ignore it. And I have collaborated in that failure of advertising by deciding not to pay as much attention to it as I might. Certainly not so much that it provokes a crisis where I've feel myself always standing by the pond watching another child drown. I don't really have an argument against this bleak picture, apart from saying something else, which is, I want to live in a world where restaurants that serve good food exist, and I also want to eat in them, right? And I think we have to get to a future in which such abundance is the common inheritance of all humanity. In this light, there's something merely paralyzing about Singer's analysis. I know he doesn't mean it to be that way, but 
there's no way you can or will live up to its implications. And yet you'll come away feeling that you should. So if, if you're philosophically and ethically sensitive and you go down this path with Singer, you'll probably still live more or less the way you want, but you'll periodically feel like a total hypocrite. Now, Will's emphasis on the opportunity of giving cuts through this. Forget about measuring yourself against a standard of perfection and just realize that by dint of sheer good luck, you get to do tremendous good in this world whenever you want. Today, you could rescue a child from a burning building. You really can. This isn't merely a metaphor. You can save a life today or over the course of the next year, a life that would otherwise not be saved but for your action. So forget about the lives that you're not saving or didn't save yesterday when you were just playing with your kids at the beach. You want to live in a world where you get to play with your kids at the beach, but you also get to rescue someone else's kid from a burning building, from malaria or cholera or a civil war. You get to do that. So I want to translate this insight into action and save a life through the podcast every month, just systematically, month after month. Now, the current estimate of what it takes to do this is $3,500. So each month, the first $3,500 that comes into the podcast will go directly to the number one rated charity at givewell.org. And this is currently the Against Malaria Foundation, which distributes the bed nets that Will and I were talking about. Somewhere in the range of 400 to 800,000 people die every year from malaria. A majority are children and pregnant mothers. In fact, according to UNICEF, children under five represent 78% of the deaths from malaria. Something like 1,200 die a day from this disease. This is a very good thing to prevent, obviously. So thank you, Will. Your philosophizing is having a tangible effect on the world. You are the proximate cause of this change in my behavior. And now through this podcast, no matter how ineffectual or frustrating the conversations are, and there have been a few that have been just pure pain, every month I get to rush into a burning building and save a life, which is awesome.